It's very, very wonderful to be with you here today. Um, I'm going to give you a quick little background to where because I've been, I would always consider Servants Church my home church. I still consider it my sort of home church away from home, even though I'm the other side of the country now. Uh, I'm one of the Hubbard clan, who you uh, have all been praying for one of them anyway, Esther, so she's my sister. And uh, the family has been coming to Servants for many, many, many years. Um, and so I sort of, I grew up in this church. I found my footing with theology and doctrine in this church. I will always consider uh, John Brown the sort of fourth, uh, you know, first person I'll go to in terms of uh, doctrine and helping and discussion and all that kind of stuff. So I have a big long history of this church. Um, and I now work for an organisation called Creation Research Ministry, which originally was founded in Australia. Uh, if you haven't heard of our international director, John Mackay, you will almost certainly have heard of uh, the first person he employed, which was a certain Ken Ham uh, of Arms and Genesis. So the two of them go way back. They kind of started the first creation ministry, um, certainly the one that, that's recognised today. Ken obviously moved to the States, he's now Arms and Genesis. John stayed on in Australia, and I'm now the sort of next generation, if you like, of heading up the ministry in the UK. So what I'm going to do, before we get into the topic today, which is the topic that uh, John Brown asked me to deal with, I sent him a big long list, and this is the one that he chose, so don't blame me if you don't like it. Um, <laughs> but I'll do it, I'll do it anyway. So it's, it's a good topic, he chose well. What I'm going to do is give you a little bit of a background as to the kind of stuff that we do, a bit about how you can find out more about the work that we do, and uh, where we travel to, and so on and so forth. One of the big things that's come out in the last couple of years is a podcast called Creation Conversations. Um, don't worry, the first few are just uh, maybe pictures and then hopefully we'll get to the text which you'll be able to see a bit clearer. Uh, Creation Conversations started in the middle of COVID for obvious reasons. We weren't going and doing this kind of stuff. So we had to find a way around that. We turned to online and um, I better actually start this otherwise I'm liable to go on for a lot more. There we are. I'm on time now. Um, so Creation, Creation Conversations is a team of us from around the world, we've got people from the UK, people from Australia, and we have guests from all over the world come on, and we deal with a different topic every single week. It doesn't just stick to the creation stuff. Yes, we are overarching a creation ministry. We don't just deal with the creation, evolution, ideas, all of that. We deal with pretty much any kind of social or biblical authority topic. We dealt with Islam uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And we try and give people answers, we try and help people. So it's available for, to free for, to watch on YouTube. It's also on our pretty much every podcast station that you can see. We also need field trips and conventions. I went through uh, academia, I did geology, I'm now doing my PhD. And that's great fun because we get to do dinosaur bones and break them open and look for soft squishy stuff inside of them, but more of that later maybe. But one of the things that I sort of had growing up through university was we'd be taken out field trips. And university field trips were pretty much lectures on the beach, and they were boring. And I thought, I need to have a way that we can do field trips where actually we take anybody out, no matter your background, we take you out, we show you how to dig up fossils, but also we get you to think critically about the rocks. We get you to step outside of the box. We get you to help and start critically thinking about the world around you. So this is a big thing that we've got coming up. You'll find information about it at the back. 
It's coming up next week, so we're charging around the place, getting ready for it. And we've got a great set of speakers for the evening seminars, so we get people from, again, all over the world come and speak for us. And we delve into the rocks and the fossils. We take you out, show you how to dig the stuff up, show you how to see the evidence, and help you to think critically about the rocks. One of the big projects that we have most recently, and something that we're particularly excited about, is the Creation Research Museums project. Um, yeah, you might have heard of Ken Ham's big creation museum in the States. Well, this is a little bit different. The emphasis is slightly different. We're trying to have the emphasis on the research. So people can come and see the research we're doing. We have all of the fossils out on display. We were able to really get up close and personal to great big dinosaur bones and all sorts of cool stuff. This is one of the dinosaur bones that we're using for our PhD research. It's a big Edmontosaurus bone, which we actually dug up from the Isle of Wight. Now, you too can come on a creation research field trip and dig up your own dinosaur bones, because this is the kind of stuff that you get to get up close and personal to. So it's really, really fun and exciting. We've just moved into a brand new building in Oswestry, Street, which is over on the border of England and Wales and Shropshire. Um, yeah, we have a museum here in Norfolk for a while, a much smaller one, uh, but we, I know mean, many of you came to see that. We now have a much bigger building over in Oswestry, Street, and we've got really our work cut out trying to get it all set up and organised. We've got great big fossils and dinosaurs and stuff that we've done up with kids all over the world. And we do have an open day coming up. So if you're headed over that way anytime soon, do come and see us. We've got a big open day so you can come up close and personal to the fossils, 29th of October, and you'll be able to see things like this. Yeah, it's not just the fossils, it's not just the geology, it's also the archaeology as well. We've been really blessed to be able to acquire some amazing biblical artifacts, things like this Egyptian mummy mask. We're actually using this in research. We're doing things like carbon-14 dating on it. If you want to find out more about carbon-14 dating and how that fits in with biblical history, uh, this evening we'll be doing pretty much the same presentation over at, uh, at Hillcrest, but there will be a Q&A session afterwards. So it's a great chance for you to come along if you've got questions and answers about things outside of this topic. I don't know how well you can actually see up on the screen, but what you're looking at there is a large foundation brick from a big temple in Babylon, which has been stamped by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Mm. How do we know it's been stamped by him? Quite simply, it comes with the British Museum's provenance. It was collected by the Reverend Leonard Pearson uh, back in the 1930s, when it was perfectly legal to go and collect this kind of stuff out of Iraq. But it comes with the British Museum, and it comes with the translation. And it refers to the king in the first person. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar am I. And what you will find is when it says am I, the king either wrote it, or stamped it, or declared it himself. Because no scribe would dare pen down the words am I, because that was considered blasphemy. Now this has important sort of implications for when you open up your Bible in Daniel and you read the king of Nebuchadnezzar's prayer. Because the king said, I'm the greatest God, and God said, no, you're not, I'm going to send you wild, your hair's going to grow out, your fingernails are going to grow out. And by the end of this period of madness, King Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what, I might not be the most important God. And so he wrote down a prayer, which was referred to him in the first person. And many historical scholars said this proves that the Bible could not have been written, or the book of Daniel at least, could not have been written at the time that it was supposed to have been written. Because no scribe would dare pen down the words, I am Nebuchadnezzar. No scribe would write it in the first person. 
and yet we're now finding cuneiform tablets and foundation bricks which refer to Nebuchadnezzar in the first person, showing it is an absolute accurate record of what Nebuchadnezzar said. So you can trust the Bible. We also have other biblical artifacts like these. These are known as lamech jars, which are stamped with the royal seal, the royal seal of King Hezekiah. And so you can come and see stuff stamped by King Hezekiah. You can read in the book of Chronicles where it says that King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, was invading Judah, and Hezekiah made important ramifications to the city, the most famous of which is, of course, Hezekiah's tunnel, the uh, you know, well that brings the water into Jerusalem. But it also says that he made up storehouses of pots, he made up storehouses for grain and oil and wine. And these are some of the pots with the royal stamp of Hezekiah. Of course, you don't get too far without getting into the geological side of things. Beautiful fossil fish, beautiful fossil primates that can only be buried quickly. Excellent research into stalactites and stalagmites and how quick they form. Excavations around the world, giant trees, dinosaur skulls, all sorts of fantastic stuff. So come along and see. Uh, if you're over Shropshire Way, do pop in and see our museum. And if you're available around for the open day, of course, I know it's a bit of a track and I'm heading back there this evening, so I don't know how much of a track it is, but do come along, it'll be well worth it. Okay, our topic today. This is really the overarching question. Did a good God make bad things? It's a question that comes up so many times in our line of work. Really, this is an amalgamation of two presentations, which I've done many, many times, um, one deadly bite and the poisoning me. Specifically, we're looking at things like venom. We're looking at things like poison. We're looking at things like, why would God make something which we understand today to be bad? And how do we actually understand it today to be bad? Because many people would argue that this stuff is good. And we're really going to focus today, because these are very scientific talks in their nature, we're really going to focus today on the biblical implications. So starting with the Bible, Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you that is also in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. If we are ever going to get to a solution about this question, if we're ever going to get to an answer to this question, we need to be made sure, we need to be 100% sure, that we are viewing this question with the mind of Christ. We are viewing this question with Christ's mind in us. Let this mind be in you that is also in Christ. And the real question that it boils down to is, who is your authority? Is it God's unchanging word, or is it man's continually evolving theories? Well, we're going to start with something fun. We're going to start with a, who am I, quiz? Who am I? My mouth is filled with razor-sharp serrated teeth. I use my sharp teeth for pulping broccoli, cabbage, and other greens, but I can steal from the green turtle. My owners say they're happy to hide pieces of fish inside celery sticks, hollowed out cucumbers, and between the leaves of lettuce to get me to eat them. But if they don't hide it well, I ignore their meat and wait for the strictly vegetarian stuff. Yum. Who am I? I am Florence, the vegetarian tropical nurse shark at the National Sea Life Centre of Bell in the UK. This was actually out in the report in the Daily Mail just a few years back. I was working uh, involved in zoos at the time, and uh, I swept through the zoo world. There's a vegetarian shark. But then don't be surprised, because if you take a biblical picture of things, in the beginning God created. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 1. 
And in the beginning, God made the world very good. Of course, you do have to ask, what does that word good actually mean? Because today, we often view that word as a moral word. And it is. But to God, it is so much more. Because he describes to us what the good world was actually like. Good means all creatures were originally vegetarian. You can read it in 1 Genesis chapter 1, 29 to 30. The only permission that God gave to the animals to eat were the herb of the field, the plants and the herbs of the field. So don't be surprised that even in a fallen world, even in a world that is marred by sin, you still see the effects of that original good creation with the things like vegetarian sharks or occasionally vegetarian lions. This isn't human beings forcing their vegetarian lifestyle onto these creatures because that is... Um, an ethical issue there sometimes, but these are animals which have actually chosen to eat a purely vegetarian diet. The point, there are many theories, opinions, ideas that disagree with everything in the Bible, but the fact that they actually do. Take one more example. This is a fossil of a shark. You can all see it. Yeah, I may be surprised because ten times uh, God stated in Genesis chapter 1 that God created things after its kind. Our theme verse, and this is a challenge to Christians here today, 2 Corinthians 10. Destroy arguments and every opinion raised against the knowledge of God and make every thought captive to Christ. Our role, as we are told in Peter, is to be ready to give an answer for everything that is brought up to us. Why do you believe this? Why don't you believe this? How could you possibly believe in a good God when you look at the world around us and see what the problems there are today? So the common question that comes up, well, we dealt with that, you know, why would a good God make bad things? Let's narrow it down a bit. If a good God made a good world, why are some creatures venomous or poisonous? And to really get to grips with this, and I know this is, we're getting onto the science now, but just let's break it down a little bit. Um, let's make our definitions clear. Venomous means it injects toxins. So as you see that, if it bites you, you die, it's venomous, right? So bees, wasps, venomous, snakes, they bite you, they inject venom. Poisonous means it contains toxins, so if you bite it and you die, then it's poisonous, right? So toads and so on and so forth, there's some examples. Snakes, bees, wasps, spiders, platypus, shrews, the like, they're all venomous. Uh, toads, poison arrows, rods, or poison dark frogs, beetles, salamanders, some fungus, they are what I refer to as poisonous. Okay, remember. If we're going to get to an answer to this, we need to make sure we let this mind be near that is also in Christ. And let me give you a really practical example of that. Fossil shark tooth. We actually dug this one out of Florida, out of Swanson, Florida. You can see the shark tooth, this is the exact same one, and next to it there, you can see the modern day mackerel shark tooth. So the mackerel shark tooth is about that big, the megalodon shark tooth is about that big. Well, this is the megalodon shark tooth. Um, great white sharks. Pretty big shark, gets to about 4 to 6 metres in length a day, maybe we've gone got to about 25 metres in length. So this is a big shark. And um, alright, big picture, biblical picture. You can all look at this, and you can pretty much all of you see that this is a shark's tooth. There's no doubt about it. Okay, it's a very big shark's tooth, but it's a shark's tooth nonetheless. However, I just told you that I dug this out of the rocks in the swamps in Florida. Now, if you were all an ancient Greek, you would be viewing this completely differently. Because the ancient Greeks did not think like we do. The ancient Greeks thought in a principle of many, many gods. 
and their gods were just like us, but bigger. So if we could create things, the gods could create bigger things. If we could get angry, the gods could get way angrier, and if we can play tricks, then the Greeks believed that the Greeks got gods could play even bigger tricks. And so the way that they viewed the world affected that way that they understood the world. Now, they would dig these up out of the rocks and they would say, well, hang on a minute, sharks live in the water. They don't live in the rocks, therefore there's no way that these could possibly be sharks. These must be tricks played on us by the gods. Now, understand that that is a completely, 100% logical answer. Just so happens to be completely 100% wrong, right? Now, first philosophical point of the morning, just because something is logical does not make it true. Truth will always be logical, but it doesn't work the other way round. Okay? The way that the Greeks understood the world affected the way that they studied the world, it affected the way that they viewed the world. And they came to the completely logical conclusion that these sharp teeth were tricks played by the gods. And the Greeks influenced the Romans, the Romans influenced most of Western civilization, and all down throughout the Middle Ages, these were considered tricks. Not played on us by the big gods at this point, but played on us by Satan, the devil, right? They believed these were tricks played on us to deceive us. And it wasn't until the 1600s that a man called Nicholas Stino wrote a book that thick all about, hey, guess what? If this looks like a shark's tooth, and it feels like a shark's tooth, and it's the same as a shark's tooth both inside and outside, it probably is a shark's tooth, right? His entire book was based on this premise. And he said, if this really is a shark's tooth, we can now ask the legitimate question, how did this get in the rocks? Because sharks live in the water, but they don't live in the rocks. And all of a sudden opens up the birth of a new science called paleontology, the study of how these things get in the rocks, right? The study of old fossils. Okay, why did Nicholas Dino come to a conclusion that was logical and correct, but that was so vastly different from the ancient Greeks? Answer, Nicholas Dino had the mind of Christ in him. He believed that God created the world. He believed that if you could trust God's word, you could trust God's world. He believed that if you, well, God wouldn't lie to us. He wouldn't play trick on us or allow tricks to be played on us. So if you find something that looks like a shark's tooth both inside and outside, it probably is a shark's tooth, and that's a very reasonable and correct conclusion to actually come to. So the birth of paleontology, the birth of studying fossils, came from a man who had the mind of Christ, a completely separate mind as to what the Greeks had. So it is extremely important to make sure that we start off with a biblical worldview. Starting with Genesis chapter 1. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. The Bible is emphatic that in the beginning when God <coughs> created, everything was created in perfection. But that perfection has changed because of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible is emphatic, and you read about it in the Romans, you read about it in the Corinthians, by one man sin entered the world. Yes, Eve was deceived, Adam willfully chose to disobey. The blame is completely on Adam. So it's all right, ladies, you can relax. It's not your fault. But the Bible is clear. It's Adam's choice. It was Adam's sin that brought death into the world in the first place. The world had changed from good to bad. And continuing down through the line, you find that there are still rules which apply today, things like created after its own kind. We still see that in effect today. Creatures do reproduce only after their own kind, and that's all you can see from the fossil record. Ten times after its own kind, and God created all things originally very good. All creatures were originally vegetarian. 
mankind sin, Genesis chapter 3. Death entered the world, the world will change from good to bad. Romans chapter 5. As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed on to all men, for all have sinned. Following on through, uh, what do you find? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Yeah, the Bible's emphatic. Death is not a natural part of God's creation. It's now a fact of life, but it is not a biological necessity. Because death will be destroyed at the end. 1 Corinthians, for he, Christ, must reign till he has got all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And you can read about the death of death in Revelation. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Important point number one. Death is now a fact of life, but it is not a biological necessity according to Scripture. In the beginning, God created everything very good. Mankind fell. The world was cursed, skipped down to Noah's flood, and the world would change from good to bad to worse. This, by the way, is degeneration. It's a downhill spiral. It is the opposite of what evolution teaches. Okay, another practical example. Thorns. Nasty things. Even pineapples are covered in thorns. These are all pictures from our Jurassic Garden Museum where we have a thorn garden. We might be the only botanical garden in the world out of thorn garden. But it's there for an important point. No pun intended. Um, it's there to get people to think about the effects of the curse. And like I mentioned earlier, we love to take people out on field trips. We get to show them the rocks. We get to show them how to dig up fossils. You might recognise this in Castleton. It's um, Mantour in the background. And there are rocks there which stink of oil, stink of diesel. That's because they're full of crude oil. And they're full of carbon. And when you dig these rocks up, sometimes you can start to see fossils inside of them. It takes a minute or two to kind of oxidise so you can see it clearer. And I don't know how well it's going to show up on the screen, but look carefully, see if you can start to spot what is there. Let it oxidise a bit more, it starts to get a bit clearer. It's even clearer, put it under a special filter, and you see the fossil forms on this plant, sticking out of the sides. Yeah, we've found fossil forms all over the world. Okay, biblical point, the Carboniferous is supposed to be 304 million years old, according to secular science. Is it really that age? How would we be able to tell? Well, let's take you to Northumberland in the UK. Um, beautiful fossil trees that cut up through layers and layers of strata. These rocks are also Carboniferous, supposedly 318 million years old. And we find fossil forms there as well. Fossil forms for sure. Okay? Northumberland, UK, 318 million years old. Now, they're not 318 million years old, according to the Bible. What am I on about? Genesis chapter 3. Then God said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, saying, uh, which I command you, saying, You shall not eat of it, the ground is cursed for your sake, in toil you shall eat out of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herd of the fields. Ah, the Bible is not just a history of salvation, it's not just a history of creation, it's a history of thorns and thistles. So don't be surprised that Christ was crucified with thorns and thistles on his head, because he was taking the effect of the curse, he was taking the keys of death, and he was wearing a symbol of that curse when he died. Yeah, according to scripture, these rocks are less than 10,000 years old. 
And we found these fossil forms all over the world. We found them in layers, up and down the geological column. There's no doubt about it. Carboniferous rocks in Nova Scotia, supposedly 300 million years old. When did this rock form? This rock formed after Adam Sith. Therefore, it's less than 10,000 years old, somewhere between 6 to 7,000 years old, according to scripture. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's get into the crux of the issue. One deadly bite. There's a big question about things like snakes. I love snakes. I worked as a zookeeper for nearly six years. I got to deal with some fantastic creatures, including all the reptiles. Absolutely beautiful, wonderful kind of creatures. Get to design their enclosures. Get to get up close and personal to them. It's great fun. And most of you will know that snakes, well, they use their sense of smell to hunt. Yes, in today's world, they are almost exclusively strictly carnivorous. And they will use an incredible design of using their tongue to grab hold of scent particles, bring it into their mouth, put those scent particles into their brain, which will send the immediate information to their brain uh, about how to actually go and hunt and find their creatures. Snakes do not dislocate their jaws, contrary to popular belief. They have a rather spectacular design called quadruple bone, and they have no chin. And this simply means they can open their jaws up very, very wide. And it means that they can, and sorry if you're squeamish, deal with a fairly large amount of food. Of course, I like to remind people, if you were to shove that amount of food in your mouth, um, would you be able to breathe? No. So how's the snake breathing? Ah, that many people have thought that before. And I like to remind people that it's a good job that God designed the snake and you didn't. Because they actually have a bypass system. A special tube which they can actually stick out to the side of their mouth. It goes up down the back of their head and down to their lungs. And they can fill up their entire esophagus and their entire nasal cavities with food and they can still breathe no problem at all. Of course, if you have to ask the question, how do these incredibly complex organisms evolve perfectly at the correct time? Because if you have the snake with the smell but you don't have the jaw, you can find your food but you can't catch it. If you have your jaw and your sense of smell, but you don't have a stomach large enough to cope with it, you're still going to die. If you have all of that together and you don't have that breathing tube, you'll get halfway down and you'll suffocate. All of these things need to be in place at the right time, and it's got nothing to do with time, it's got everything to do with a process. Yeah, get the process right, it happens quickly. Alright, one deadly bite. What about venom? What about toxins? What about poison? Where does this fit into a very good world? Rattlesnakes. Nasty creatures. We'll warn you, 99% of the time, if you still go ahead and step on it, you're liable to get bitten. And venom is an extremely complex sort of cocktail of enzymes and proteins designed to do one thing specifically, and it is not killing you. Huh. I wonder what it is for. You see, there are some questions that you need to ask when dealing with this topic. Why would God create venom? Is venom the result of the fall? Could venom have had a different use? Could it have gotten worse after the curse? And perhaps most importantly, are there any vegetarian animals that can take venom? Because that could give us an indication as to what venom is actually designed for. Now, there's lots of different ways that people have tried to take things like venom and toxin and fit it into a biblical point of view. There's lots of different ideas. One of them is that God equipped snakes with venom to survive in a fallen world. So God, in his foreknowledge, knew that the world was going to be cursed, knew that there was going to be struggles, so he equipped creatures with the ability to survive in a fallen world. That's one idea. 
The other idea is that venom was created after the fall, so it was a supernatural intervention and that many of these creatures took on toxins and poisons and so on and so forth. Another idea is that venom simply arose naturally after the fall through adaptation. And a final idea is that God actually designed snakes to kill, but he limited them before the world was cursed. Now there are major biblical issues with every single one of these points. Because regardless of your opinion of what venom is, the biblical point is God created the world very good. Where's the clash? Here it is. Sir David Attenborough, in Life in Cold Blood, one of his uh, programs on reptiles, said snakes are the ultimate killing machines. Okay, which perspective is David Attenborough coming from? This is the perspective. In the beginning, nothing exploded. And that nothing all by itself turned into molecules, which turned into microbes, which turned into monsters like the dinosaurs, which eventually evolved all by itself into mankind and beyond. Evolution in a nutshell is that a colourless, odourless gas called hydrogen, given enough time, can turn into Boris Johnson. That's the theory of evolution in a nutshell. Hydrogen, which is a colourless, odourless gas, all by itself can turn into every living and non-living thing that we see today. Now, this is the perspective he's coming from. And when you come from this perspective of evolution, which is a kill or be killed philosophy, you will end up coming to the logical conclusion that snakes are the ultimate killing machine. But remember the Greeks. Does logic equal truth? No. The solution? Start with a biblical perspective. In the beginning, everything was very good. The mankind fell, now was flood, and the world had changed from good to bad to worse. With the initial fall of mankind and with the global flood, you'll find at the end of the global flood, it's the first ever reference to climate change. For as long as the earth shall remain, sea time, harvest, cold, heat, summer and winter shall remain. Meet Clarice. Clarice is a red green iguana. Green one was the species name, she's a red one now, after the one. Clarice was a very friendly green iguana from my zookeeping days, and she used to climb up and sit on my hat. And also meet Methuselah. Methuselah was a bearded dragon. Now, both green ones and bearded dragons have extremely sharp, serrated, backward pointing teeth. You can see some of uh, the bearded dragon's teeth there. They're actually pretty serious. Green iguana's teeth are even more serious. I know this because Clarice had a brother. The brother was called Hannibal. I didn't know that. <laughs> Hannibal, unfortunately, had had his tail ripped off by a uh, previous owner. Very, very sad. Hannibal, understandably, didn't like human beings. Unfortunately, uh, being a zoo, we had to go in and get them and do a health check, make sure they were all okay. And one day I noticed that Hannibal had a large flap of skin stuck in his arm. And try as hard as I could, I could not get that flap of skin out of my big gauntlets on. So I handed the uh, Hannibal, the green one, to my colleague. I took my gauntlets off. <laughs> See where this is going. Came over the top of him, grabbed that hole of that bit of skin, pulled the skin out of his eye, he whipped around and grabbed hold of me on my wrist. Now, like I said, Iguanas have extremely sharp, serrated, backward pointing teeth. The teeth sunk down easily through the flesh, and if I had whipped my hand out, it would have easily sliced through my uh, tendons. There's lots of people you know, um, doing surgery and pull back up again. So I didn't do that, I just shouted help, and my colleagues came running and thought it was hilarious. The first thing they tried was vinegar. That didn't work, I just had vinegar in my fresh cups. 
which wasn't as bad as the chili sauce they had. <laughs> Eventually, the only thing that we could do was we slid a little metal rod in, poised it over my head, and book his teeth before sliding my hand down. Now, why am I telling you this? Very simply, you cannot tell what an animal eats from the shape or size of its teeth. You can only tell how an animal eats. These are laser sharp backward points of the teeth, and really wireless are 100% vegetarian. Bearded dragons are 80% vegetarian, and the only meat they consume are little bugs and grubs and cockroaches and things like that, right? Um, you can actually see them enjoying a nice snack of food here. Uh, lovely leafy, all that kind of stuff, right? Now, when it comes to behaviour, see if you've noticed, you might actually notice maybe, this is, this is how old we can call it. Have a look and see what he's doing with this great big tough lettuce uh, cabbage leaf. He's grabbing hold of it and then he's starting to swing his head side by side to rip it off. That is a typical carnivore's action. You'll see it with big crocodiles or alligators. They grab hold of it and they swing their head back and forth to try and rip it off. My point? Well, actually, what happened very soon after I had my bite was it began to go purple and puffy. Now, this is a standard thing that would happen when you get bitten by these creatures. And for years, they thought that this was simply due to the bacteria in the saliva. No, in the last three to four years, we have now discovered that green iguanas and bearded dragons contain venom. They have venom sacs. It is a mild form of rattlesnake venom. It is potent enough to kill a small mammal like a guinea pig or a rat. It's pretty serious stuff. Harmless to humans, thankfully but pretty serious stuff, okay? Why would a 100% and 80% vegetarian creature have venom? Simple answer, venom is not designed to kill, venom is designed to digest. The reason why it kills you is because it starts to digest you. There are two forms of toxins, there's a hemotoxin and there's a neurotoxin, one attacks your blood, the other one attacks your nervous system. But the point is simple, it's a digestive process which ends up bringing creatures to their death. But venom is not designed to kill, it's designed to digest. And so you'll find we're now finding increasing amounts of vegetarian creatures that have venom because they chew it, they mix the venom with their saliva, and it begins to pre-digest their food and break those food down before they swallow. I mean, think about it. What did snakes eat in a very good world? Snakes have sharp teeth, venom, and heat sensors. All these things, if you start from an evolutionary point of view, all these things are designed to help the snake to kill. Well, what could all of these in a veg-eating world? Venom? Poison? Well, there's a heat-sensing pig. The argument is that these heat-sensing pigs are designed to locate mammals, warm-blooded creatures, so they can hunt and kill. But even the secular scientists are starting to reevaluate this. Look what they say. Knowing when to slither on the ground to beat the heat is a key survival skill for these cold-blooded creatures. And the researchers say that thermoregulation, that's regulation of body temperature, not hunting, may be why the pips evolved. In other words, even the secular scientists are coming to the realisation that there are other uses to these designs than just to kill. A good design. It tells you when you're too hot, it tells you when you're too cold. It tells you where you can find somewhere that's warm or cool, shade or heat. Teeth? Well, teeth grip and pierce food. They inject venom into food. Venom is a mixture of protein and enzymes that break down food. It is highly complex. There is no way that it could evolve by itself or even in a post-war world adapt by itself. It is designed to inject venom into the food in order to <coughs> digest it. 
Why do you need this line? Snakes don't chew. You speak to a doctor, chewing your food is a very important part of your digestive process. It breaks it down, it starts to break the cell walls down, you have enzymes in your saliva which get mixed with it and continue to break it down. Think of this as an enhanced saliva. It's basically what it is. It's designed to break down and digest food. And then the world changes. Take off Darwin's glasses, put God's glasses on, and view the world as a history of good to bad to worse. Yeah, in a very good world, these were good designs, and they were used for good things. But as the world changes, and you read about the history of weather in Scripture, I mean, think about it, Adam and Eve were naked, and they weren't getting sunburned in the day, and they weren't freezing to death at night. Good meant the climate was good. But then you had a global flood. After the global flood, you had the first ever reference to climate change. Hot and cold, summer and winter, a cyclic climate. Go down to Job, you have the first reference of ice and snow and hail. By the time you get to Abraham, you've got records of droughts. You now have erratic climates. And think about it. Where are the most venomous snakes around today? They're in the hardest places to live. They're in the middle of the desert. That's why Australia has more venomous snakes than non-venomous snakes. Because in a desert, there's not a lot of good plants to it. There's might be a bit of grass, but snakes can't digest grass. To digest grass, you need to have a special stomach system, which has got four chambers, so you're able to regurgitate and chew it down again. So what you're going to do, you're going to use your very good design, which is designed to digest, and you're going to use it in a bad way. You're going to use it now to kill. And you can see this digression, you can see this devolution um, right in front of you with cases like chickens. Right? Chickens, predominantly a herbivore. They eat grain. Occasionally a few bugs and bugs and worms, predominantly grain. In order to digest grain, chickens need a crop. If you are born with a mutation, a mutation is a change, it is not evolution, it is a regression, it's a loss of information. If you have a mutation, which means you're born without a crop, you can't digest grain. So what are you going to do? You're going to sit around and say, oh, well, I guess I'm going to die then. No, you're going to start hunting. To the point where you'll find them actually carnivorous hunting chickens that will take off rats and mice. Right? You can see the devolving, you can see the degrading. When there's not as much veg, the food chain begins to break down. You will use your good design as a way to protect yourself. And interestingly enough, snakes can actually choose when to eject them. They can tell the difference between male and female. I'm sorry, men, if you disturb a snake, chances are you're going to get bitten and injected with venom. However, if you are a female or a child, then actually around 25 to 50% of bites are dry bites. Kind of things. And they can often tell what is actually a danger or not. However, if you are wearing Darwin's glasses, what you'll simply do is define evolution as change, or all change evolution. Next, you're just going to accept change in snake diet behavior as a good for evolution and dismiss creation as unthinkable. My challenge to you today is make sure that you are viewing the world with Christ's mind. One deadly bite. Now, this is one good design, one wrong. In the beginning, everything was very good. Men was used for exactly the same thing as it was used for men digestion. The only difference is it was used to digest plants, which was the only thing that God ever gave the animals permission to eat. The real deadly bite is the one that Adam took. When he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, bringing them about, he chose his wife for his God, and as a result of that, the world's been going downhill ever since. And there's an interesting thought for marriage here, isn't it? It was Adam who chose his wife over God, and
and that's what caused the downhill spiral in the beginning. All right, we've got about a few minutes left. I'm just going to deal with one more aspect, and that's to do with poison. Uh, poison arrow frogs, or poison, poison dart frogs, they're often referred to as. Beautiful pictures. Again, I've looked after these, and I've been quite happy. I'm going to get this one frog made creature that needs to defend itself with poison like this. Well, I like to remind people that when I kept these frogs, we're hoping to get an animal section in our new museum where we can deal with venom and poison and stuff like that. I would quite happily go and pick these frogs up and give them a straight on the back and so on and so forth. Why? Because these frogs do not actually make their own poison. These frogs get their poison from axillopens, which contain acids. They contain acids not to try and scare creatures away or to be poisonous. You'll find that their acids are actually an important part of their reproductive cycle. They're an important part of creating their you know, buildings and so on and so forth. And you'll find that the frogs eat these antimilipenes. And they have to get rid of that poison. So they secrete or excrete the poison through the skin, making them highly toxic. Question. Would these frogs be poisonous in the very good world where all animals ate plants? No, because they wouldn't have been eating the insects in the first place, and the ants, right? Again, make sure you have a biblical perspective. Start with scripture and build backwards. Um, even the secular science is starting to catch up on this, to say, well, actually, it's a good chance that these frogs did not evolve in order to, uh, you know, to be poisonous in order to protect themselves, but actually it's just a byproduct. Yet yeah, it's starting to, I mean, natural selection is a real thing. Adaptation is a real thing, but there are certainly limitations to it. There are many theories, opinions, ideas that contradict every single part of scripture, but the facts never do. Biblical point of finish with the real history of change. In the beginning, God created things perfectly. God created the world very good and he created separate kinds, and the kinds were designed to reproduce after their own kinds. We still see that today. We see that all the way throughout the fossil record. All creatures began as vegetarian. Death is not a part of the original creation. It is not a biological necessity. There was no lack of provision. There was no struggle to survive. There was no disease or death. There were no scavengers or carnivores, no parasites, and there was no man. Mankind sick, animated the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God cursed the ground. Death entered the world. Thorns, thistles, weeds begin to appear, and natural selection begins. Natural selection, survival of the fittest, which means extinction of the unfit. If you are not fit, you die. It's as simple as that. Um, and so you'll find that natural selection can only begin to be in place after the curse. The world had changed from good to bad. A reminder that death is now a fact of life, but it's not a biological necessity according to scripture. Because death will be destroyed. Death will be put to death in the new heavens and the new earth. Created perfection. Fall of mankind. Skip forward to Noah's flood, and scripture records corruption and violence. The earth was corrupt and filled with violence. God was grieved. All of a sudden you have unnatural selection against the weaker ones that increase. Abel was the weaker one. Unnatural selection came okay, into death. You realize that there's nothing actually wrong with that according to an evolutionary philosophy? Death is just a natural part of life. Kill or be killed. Ah, very different to what we read in scripture. 
By the time of Noah's flood, we find there were reference to unclean animals. Generally, unclean animals have a connection to the scavengers. That's why pigs are unclean, because they scavenge. Because they're eating the rotten, they're eating the muck, they're eating the stuff out of the, uh, the scavengers, they're eating the rotten creatures. So you find by the time of Noah, there's a strong indication that if there weren't hunters, there were certainly scavengers. There were creatures that were eating things that they shouldn't want or weren't told to eat in the beginning. God sends a worldwide judgment to wipe out all mankind and all man-dwelling creatures except for those who are on the ark of Noah. Come off the ark, first reference to climate change. Till the end of the world, there will be seed-time harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, until the end of the world. Interesting to talk about climate change today, and that's a completely different topic. New food room. God now tells us that we can eat all things. Animals, birds, fish, but not blood. But what you find is that as a result of Noah's flood and the curse, there is now struggle to survive, there is now death, there is now scavengers, there are now carnivores. Um, and you'll notice an interesting pattern between the way that climate degenerates and the way that human ages degenerate. Adam, 930, Methuselah, 969, Noah, 950, the last person to live over 900 years. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the flood, the world's been going downhill, climate's been going downhill, it's been degenerating, and by the time of Moses, you'll find he lived to 120, and we're hard pushed to find anybody who lives over that nowadays. Um, major changes. Natural selection becomes a force. Degenerating climate becomes a serious issue. Survival of the fittest is now on a much, much bigger scale. Hmm. Interesting when you put on God's glasses. Life that was created with separate kinds, separate kinds which reproduce their own kind through time, and change is actually the result of the pre-designed adaptation or degenerative evolution. It's never the other one. It never goes up. It always is going down. The world has certainly changed, but it's not this change. It's not bad to better. It's good to bad to worse. It's devolution. But good to bad, to worse, to glory. Because Isaiah, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the child shall lead them, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. A beautiful promise and a wonderful thing that God has given to us. So, real quickly, what's the importance of this? Why do we deal with these topics? Why is it important to have an answer for the hope that is within us? Jesus said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You know the story, the account that Jesus gave of the rich man and the poor man Lazarus, and they both died. Poor man Lazarus went into paradise, rich man went into torment, and the rich man begged Abraham, let me go back to my family, because if I come out of death, if I come to life from death, then they all believe. And Abraham said, no, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one lies from the dead. Point, if you can show people, if you can give people answers that they can trust Moses and the prophets, that you can trust scripture from the beginning all the way to the end, they can be persuaded that one lies from the dead. That would, of course, be Jesus Christ. The two things go together and well, a reminder, check out creationresearchuk.com, check out creationresearch.net. I'm sure I'll be around here this afternoon if you've got more questions. We've got some brand new resources and stuff up the back there, really exciting stuff. 
and make sure that you sign up to our newsletter if you want to find out more about where I am, where I'm going, or what I'm doing soon. I'll tell that pretty nicely. <laughs> Thank you all very much, and God bless.